I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Virago Podcast, a monthly celebration of books, reading, and writing, Brought to you by Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. My name is Isla Ahmed. I am publishing director of Virago, and I'm sitting here with Lenny Goodings, chair of Virago. Today we are discussing A Bite of the Apple, A Life with Books, Writers and Virago, published by Oxford University Press. This book begins with the establishment of Virago as an independent press almost 40 years ago and covers some key moments in feminism publishing and the rise of many women writers who are now part of the canon. Writers like Margaret Atwood, Maya Angelou, Grace Paley and Angela Carter. A Bite of the Apple is a book about working with conviction, passion and excitement for one of the most influential publishers in the world. And its author, Lenny Goodings, um, has been with the Iconic Press from the start. Hello, Lenny. Hello. Almost from the start. Almost from the start. I came, it was already going for about four or five years when I started. But um, yes, I can definitely say I've been through everything. Everything. (laughs) Up and down. Perfect. Um, And you call this book a a hybrid, part memoir, part history of Virago, and part thoughts on more than 40 years of feminist publishing. Um, Can you tell us why you took this approach uh, and why you felt that now was the time to tell the story of Virago? Well, I I partly, partly because I like the hybrid form. I think it's more interesting than a straight memoir or a straight um, biography, or this would have been biography of a company, but even still, I thought it was it was an interesting way but it also just kind of it started to come out that way because one of the things I would actually characterize myself as the uh, having written an accidental memoir Mm -hmm. I am an accidental memoirist I did not intend to write a memoir what I thought I would do is talk about publishing and particularly talk about feminist publishing the the length of time that Virago's been there so sort of the history of feminist publishing within Virago's parameters um, um, but once I started writing, I realized that lots of people could come at this story, and lots of people have in terms of um, thesis and all that kind of stuff, But and essays. We have a lot of people writing essays and things on Virago. And I suddenly realized that the one thing that other people couldn't do is say what it was like to be there. Mm-hmm. And so I realized I had to inhabit it way more. And instead of being a fly on the wall, I had to acknowledge the fact that you know I was, I was part of it. And the reason I say um, 
I had to sort of grow into that is because Virago's been, you know, Virago's almost like its own self. I think of her as a, as a woman, heroic woman, which is what Virago means. Um, but I think of her as her own, as her own woman. And we've published 4,000 books. Wow. A <laughs> thousand um, authors and probably well over a hundred women have worked for Virago over these years. And so there's a bit of feeling like, whoa, got to be a little careful. There's Virago sitting on my shoulder thinking, is that okay? And then there's all the women that have worked for us and women that we publish. So I felt kind of quite burdened by, you know, um, telling everyone's story, claiming people's story. And then I realized I had to claim my space in it. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. it became a memoir, but not really a memoir, mm -hmm. a hybrid. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And your, um, your place in, in the story of Virago uh, is evoked so wonderfully in the beginning of the book. Um, oh, thank you. There's this fantastic quote that you include also by Angela Carter, uh, which says, The sense of limitless freedom that I, as a woman, sometimes feel is that of a new kind of being. Um, and along with that quote, you paint just such an energizing and exciting picture um, of working in this tiny office uh, with, you know, these great ideas, um, so much passion and conviction. Can you sort of paint that scene for us a bit? Because it's so beautifully done in the book. Mm, thank you. Um, I can't tell you how odd it is to be on the other side of um, being having been publisher that anyone talks about your writing to your face. It's kind of humbling and amazing. So thank you for that. Um, so it was a tiny office when I first joined, and uh, it was at five. It was a tiny office when I first joined. It was in, at the top of a building in Wardour Street on the edge of Soho, um, right on the edge of Leicester Square, which was pretty seedy, frankly, in those days. And we'd climb up four or five flights to the top, and at the bottom was a pinball arcade. And then there was, you know, very dusty um, staircases, and there was a gentleman's club, which we never could see, you know, kind of men in max or something. And then we were up at the top and with no lift. And uh, when you got to the top, what I said in the book is, when you got to the top, it was so exciting, and it felt, you know, this is the air I wanted to breathe. Once I got my breath back, because it was a hell of a trip up those stairs. Um, so in that room were, um, when I first went, there were three women, Carmen Khalil, Harriet Spicer, and Ursula Owen, all sitting in the room, pounding on typewriters. And it felt like sort of stepping into, you know, a kind of, something like a suffrage outfit or something, or, or a student newspaper would be another version of it. You know, really passionate, long hours, exciting, feeling like you're on the cusp of change. The quote that you've read of Angela Carter's is really true, actually, because it felt the sense of possibility, I think, was the great thing. So, you know, and Angela Carter was born in the 1940s, so her sense of what she could be, that how she found herself in the 60s, was phenomenal, actually. You know, she'd been brought up to be sort of a good girl, really. And so all the sort of good girls had sort of bust out of that sort of idea of, you know, what girls should be and, and had taken the power to publish. And, and one of the wonderful quotes that Carmen always used to say, who, Carmen Khalil, who founded the company, would always would say, the power to publish is a wonderful thing. And I think you have, you, you won't... We won't think of that now because there's so many women in powerful positions, not enough and not consistently enough, but at least the, you know, we are taking the decisions now. And when Viraga was formed, women did not take the decisions of what was published. So there were a lot of women in publishing, but they were working for men who took the decisions. Mm -hmm. 
And you know, as an editor, this, it starts with a manuscript or a writer or an idea hitting with you. So that the, you know, you, before you take it any further, you as an editor have to think, yes, this speaks to me. And until you have women or um, different uh, people of different classes, different races, whatever, in that kind of power, you never, you don't see a true representation of the world. So it was really a dawning of the age. But as well as that, the world was waking up to women's ideas. And so there was, in 1972, before Virago got going, Spare Rib was founded, and in America, Ms. Magazine. So there was a sense of women getting into print, but women didn't have their own publishing house. And that's what Virago provided. And one of the things, um, one, of, one of the ways in which Virago has made uh, a huge and clear difference is in the establishment of the Virago Modern Classics. Um, and it just feels to me that we would never have this list of you know, hugely important writers who are now firmly part of the canon um, without the work that was done by all of the editors um, at the imprint. And uh, in the book, there's another great quote by Margaret Drabble, which says, it's not too much to claim that Virago modern classics changed the course of English literary history. I mean, that's an amazing quote. Um, did you feel that the VMCs would become such an important list? Where did the sort of the idea come from um, and how was that fully realised? I don't think I did realise at the time, no. I mean, I, I think it would. I soon saw that it was gathering speed and we began to get quotes like Margaret uh, Drabble's and a lot of men too. I mean, a lot of literary men really could see the, the, you know, what sort of waves we were making. But it started, Carmen Khalil started it in, in 78, so after Virago had been publishing. Virago published first books in 1975, so three years later. And she got hold of uh, Frost in May by Antonia White, and she just loved it and thought, I really want to republish this. And then she used as her model the Penguin Modern Classics and thought to herself, what I want to establish is a female literary tradition. And, you know, now today we have such a sort of strong sense of that. We have a st sense of how women had sort of stood on each other's shoulders. But in those days, th there was such a strong sense of what was the canon. And in fact, the only women who were in the canon really were the Brontes. Wow. <laughs> um, Jane Austen yeah. and George Eliot. And then, so they were thought to be the greats because there had been this idea, the Levis idea of what, is, what are the great yeah. works. They made it in they, under um, the barricades and they were thought to be great. But Carmen's idea was to sort of sort of push the boundary of what is great and also back to the same thing about who made who decides who, what is great. So she had a, a double thinking there of, yes, these women are great. Let's celebrate their greatness, but also let's see this tradition of women's literature. And so she found that, you know, so many of these books, Rebecca West, Rosamund Lehman, Sylvia Townsend Warner, Elizabeth Taylor, you know, these great writers who had sort of fed each other in lots of ways were all out of print. I mean, men's book go out of print too. It's, you know, lots of books go out of print. That, that is the nature of publishing. But by pulling them back together and putting them under this umbrella, she did a, a combination of showing that there was a female literary tradition and brought huge pleasure to so many people too. And one of the early um, sort of aims of Virago was really to get into schools and universities, get women's books on, on courses, and they just weren't. 
Mm. It seems hard to imagine a landscape um, without some of the writers that you've mentioned, uh, you know, within the canon. It seems just extraordinary. Um, but as well as a really rich backlist, one of the amazing things that Virago did was uh, build a very fierce front list as well. Um, and one of the writers uh, who you have um, championed and you've published um, and worked with for a long time is Margaret Atwood. Uh, and there's a great chapter within your book about editing Atwood, uh, Mad Adam in particular. Um, and in this chapter, you describe the process, which it feels like quite a unique process of editing. Um, and it involves flying over to Canada, reading, working on the manuscript under a very tight deadline. Um, and it just seems so extraordinary to me. And it shows the ways in which an editor can really go above and beyond when they have such an amazing connection with a writer. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about that and sort of paint that scene? Because it sticks in my mind so much. Um, yes, it's. I have a chapter called The Intimacy of Editing because I really wanted to talk, I wanted to sort of lift the veil for people who aren't in publishing or even people who are in publishing because I think editorial and the relationship between author and editor is often, you know, it's different in each case, but it's very intense, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I decided I wanted to talk about that. And, I, and then I wanted to talk about the fact that behind every author, you know, I, I think of it as a sort of um, inverted V. So at the bottom of the V is the author and then above the author are the editor, the production director, the marketing, the publicity, da -da. you know, there's like 20 of us pulling together a book and but the one person on on whom the whole thing rests, the shoulders on which the whole enterprise rests, so just one person. So I really wanted to talk a lot about what it's like to be um, the author. And Margaret Atwood then, so I called that a sort of team, you know, we are the team. And I, I said that Margaret Atwood takes it even further to sort of coaching. So we're, we're a big team for her. So she has a lot of uh, publishers and editors around the world, but she particularly leans on her English language ones. And she had this um, sort of tradition um, of which I got, uh, which I took part in for Mad Adam, of calling all her English language editors to a hotel in Toronto and we were given part of the manuscript before it was you know I mean when I describe it now it sounds like an exam <laughs> it felt a bit like an exam too actually because we were given part of it and, and then when we got there she gave each of us a little box and each of us had a different color box and in it was you know, it was all tied up in a ribbon and then there was a sort of goodie bag which felt which was um aspirins and lo lozenges and uh, you know chocolates and things like that and then it was like a firing gun was fired and go and we all ran to our bedrooms <laughs> in the hotel and started reading madly but I really admired Margaret Atwood because what she I mean she had a huge confidence in her writing of course after all these years but the confidence extends to the fact that she can listen to a bank of people talking about it and then she did. She asked us very close questions, like a few things we said. We didn't. We weren't sure. I can't remember. The, the title wasn't Mad Adam at that point. Um, and we talked a lot about some of the characters and some of the ending and things like that. And she just listened to all of it. And then we knew she was going to take some of our ideas and some of them not, actually. But it was. it's a bold thing because I think it's very hard to show someone you're writing even if you're an accomplished novelist. It's very exposing, and which is why I talk about intimacy, because when you first receive a writer's 
work. You have to be very sensitive to the fact that it's, it's like kind of opening their, their, their clothes and showing themselves naked, isn't it? Yeah. And um, I, thought, I sort of really admired her that she could be tough enough for that and, um, and welcome, welcome the conversation. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And in the book, you talk about uh, writers needing courage and conviction. Um, there's a great reference to something that Hilary Mantel said. Um, she often asks writers who has given them courage rather than who they've been influenced by. And I wanted to ask you, um, which writers have given you courage over the years, and especially uh, in terms of writing this book? I would say the person who's probably given me the most courage would be Margaret Atwood, because... What Margaret Atwood represents for me, being Canadian, is a sort of new flowering of Canadian literature. So I first discovered her when I was 14. I found a, a collection of her poetry. At the time that she was publishing, first started publishing, it was in the 1960s. And there, was, there wasn't a sense of Canadian publishing then. I mean, at that point, Canada was importing British voices or American voices. And we were early on establishing ourselves as having our own Canadian literature. We had it, but it was very disparate and it wasn't much studied, it wasn't pulled together. And Margaret Atwood, in fact, and her husband, Graham Gibson, were part of that new movement and some of the small presses, and Nancy and all sorts of presses, were part of that movement that put Canadian writing on the map and discussed it as Canadian writing. You know, a bit. That's why I think I fell into Virago so easily. I realized now, looking back, because then it was the same kind of thing. It was, oh, this is feminist writing, or this is women's writing. You know, when you group things together, when you give it its sort of a strength of each other, and put an umbrella over the top of it and stand up for it, you it gives it has a different strength. It has. It's not an individual voice anymore, all by itself in the in the landscape. It takes strength from each other. So what I saw with Margaret Atwood was you could be creative. You could be creative and Canadian. Hello. <laughs> um, 
Uh, and that was, you know, I didn't realize it was a creative industry. So I would say she gave me that kind of courage. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of sort of um, fabulous storytelling, I would turn to Sarah Waters and Sarah Dunant and Marilyn Robinson. I think being a publisher or an editor actually is like being a mother and you daren't have a, a favourite child. <laughs> that, makes, that makes sense. Um, I can totally understand that. Another person uh, who you mentioned in the book um, who has great strength of character is Maya Angelou. Um, you describe this amazing scene of visiting her in her house and leaving and feeling like you had starch in your bones from having spent time with her and um, just having been around her. Uh, and you also uh, tell us about being on tour with Maya Angelou. What was it like to be on tour with Maya Angelou? <laughs> so Maya Angelou, I always say, came into our lives, and then I say, you know, came into our lives. That's way too tame. Mm -hmm. So she appeared in our office. Um, her book had been published, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, published in 1969, and nobody here had picked it up. And she said at the time, that nobody in Britain wanted the story of a, a little black girl growing up in America. And so all British publishers had turned it down. So we came back in, late to the party in 1984. The world had changed, it has to be said. Britain was both really ready for Maya Angelou and not ready at all because she was extraordinary. And uh, she came into our office to, to see us and she was over six foot tall and our offices were quite small, but this time we had moved over near Trafalgar Square. And um, she sang, and then she said, gave us a poem, Phenomenal Woman, for us. And we were just smitten and thought, she's got to come back immediately. So she came back for publication, and then I thought really hard. I was doing publicity in those days, and I thought really hard how, how to present her to, to, to Britain. And one of the sort of breakthroughs was she went on afternoon television with a woman named Mavis Nicholson, who was kind of a bit like our Oprah in those days. And she told the story of writing the book, but she also told the story of being raped when she was eight and how had she had, that had made her mute. She had decided not to talk. And she would, but she had also had the, the sort of things that she would often say, which is, you know, history, um, you cannot change your history, but you can change the way you respond to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to not to let other things define you. So she said all this on, on the television and the switchboards were jammed and we print, we had printed 8,000 copies and we immediately sold out. And now we've sold well over a million and a half copies of her work. To be on tour with Maya Angelou was full on. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she had another uh, expression, which is, when I come, I bring my all. And you knew that you were, the corollary was, oh, I do too. <laughs> Here I am, totally for you. And I remember saying to my family, okay, I'm now, I'm off. You know, I'm totally on duty. And on duty was fun. A lot of fun, a lot of whiskey drinking, and a lot of singing, and a um, huge amount of laughter. I mean, she was great, um, had a great sense of humor and tremendous style, but also it was really hard work. You know, it was, it was, she was demanding in the, in a way, she demanded the best of you, too. You know, so you felt, okay, I will step up to this because, you know, you're giving me everything. I want to be as good as you are, and I want to be equal to you. Mm -hmm. is what I think. And it, she, it was very extraordinary going around Britain. So this is in the eight, early 80s. And 
um, it was just the beginning. This is quite an interesting thing, is that a lot of, there was important black women writers were coming from America, so Alice Walker and Audre Lorde. And interestingly, each paired up with, Audre Lorde was paired by Sheba, and we had Maya Angelou at Virago. Um, the Women's Press published Alice Walker. Toni Morrison was published by Carmen, who had moved to Chateau by this time. So that was quite an interesting thing about these important, big women. I mean, Maya Angelou was tall, too. <laughs> she's, she's big in every sense. Um, we're coming to Britain. And Britain was sort of waking up to black power in some ways. And you could, I felt that people were thirsting. You know, everybody responded to Maya Angelou. You know, she really, because she, she believed in a kind of, in a dignity, she believed in grace, she believed in, um, that we were all, all, all should be valued. Mm -hmm. And people don't hear that very often. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. you know, so it was like pouring water on parched ground. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Um, and you had a, you had a friendship with her as well as a professional um, relationship and um, what's the best thing that she ever taught you? Oh, good question. <laughs> um, I think probably I learned a lot about dignity from her to take care. I mean, she would always she would insist. For example, when we had drivers, she would say, "What's your name?" and they go, "Oh, I'm Peter." And she'd say, "Excuse me, Pete who?" And then they'd give her her last name, their last name, and then she would call them. Mr. Taylor or whatever, she, you, she, she served everybody with a kind of unbelievable dignity and, and qual equality. So when you walk through the stations with her, sometimes she would, you, you could see her nodding to the cleaners and, you know, always gracious to the person who sold you the ticket and all that sort of stuff. And I just, you know, I mean, it sounds kind of like, shouldn't we all behave that way? But we don't. And I suppose that's what I, I would have learned from her is to take care and to to really try your best. Give more than your best, actually. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Um, and in the book, you um, talk about the experience of being an editor as being like a midwife, and you've mentioned um, here being an editor is a bit like being a mother. Um, you also say that at the heart of memoir is emotional truth. Uh, and then you have an amazing story about working on the biography of Molly Keane. Um, you really seem to go above and beyond there, and it's clearly something you're really passionate about, you really care about. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about that period of, of time? Well, I think, I suppose when you, once that's, what I think is that an editor is almost, not the co-writer by any sense, of course not, and really, of course not. Now that I've written a book, I can tell you, it feels you're the only one out here, even though you've got a lot of people behind you. It's your name on the book. But I think if you're a good editor, a good publisher, or a good publicist, it doesn't any, anywhere in the, um, in the line of people helping out an author, is that you, you have to identify with them. You have to identify with their vision. You know, get inside their head and help them make the book, not that you want as the editor, but the book that they have the vision of what Linda Grant has a nice quote saying that you know the vision of a book is like a shimmering mirage and you know you have to know when you can enter that mirage and because too soon too um, harsh too honest too early can actually smash that 
you know, a kind of an idea is very incoherent until it's down on the page and then until you start working on it. Um, so I think I possibly do go um, the extra mile for most people if I believe in the book, but I do think most editors do that. You know, it's just, it's not possible to inhabit another human being's vision and not give an awful lot of time. So when Molly Keane, who we published, the most amazing writer, and we published her in the Virago Modern Classics, when her daughter died, Sally Phipps, her, her daughter, um, was asked by Molly to write her um, biography. And that was both a, a blessing and you know, a curse. And so when I met Sally, she'd already been writing it for over 10 years, handwritten. Um, and um, so I tried to work with her um, over the telephone and she came here, to, she came to London once, That none of that worked. So I realized I just had to go to Ireland to sit with her and we sat for a weekend and read out loud every word of that book, 100,000 words of the book. <laughs> and um, it snowed and the rivers rose. I mean, it was quite sort of biblical, frankly. Um, and they, we were in a little um, part of this hotel and they put um, f uh, little electric fires all around us, <laughs> like, so like we were camping and we were in the middle of this um, situation. Um, but I think it, you have to do whatever you have to do to get the right book out of a person. And that was what Sally needed. Mm -hmm. She needed someone to sit with her to make sure, first of all, and, and, the other, and it was her mother. So, you know, it had to be right. You could, mm -hmm. And I didn't want to override things, but I didn't mind arguing with her about certain things either. So I don't know how you do it with a light touch, to be frank. Mm -hmm. um, and there are lots of um, amazing stories and experiences of editing that are very positive. Um, but have any authors in the history of Virago ever taken badly to being edited? So I do have a story in the book that, thank God this wasn't my author, um, who came in to our offices when we were in Camden Town at that point. Virago's had a lot of different offices, 10 different offices. Um, and this woman came in and her editor had beautifully printed out the whole manuscript and very gentle, tiny pencil marks annotated it all the way through of all the things that she thought needed a little enlarging or cutting, whatever. And the author took one look at it, picked the whole manuscript up and walked to the window and tossed the whole thing out onto the street. That's incredible. <laughs> that was all of it gone. And said, no, I don't want to do anything. So it's, that is rare, it has to be said. Okay, that's good but, to know. But I've had fun with Linda Grant when I was editing her the first time. Now, Linda and I have worked together now for 18 years five novels and two works of non-fiction, but on, on the very first one we worked together, I felt she could go just a bit further. That's what I meant slightly by the mothering quality or parental quality, and that's to be a, a woman, is that you slightly feel, you can you take the measure of the author, whether whether they got anything more in them or not, or whether they're absolutely shattered, or whether they're just that, or they've hit a place where they think it's fine. So I sent, I, Linda and I were nearly done, I sent one email to her saying, I just think, uh, 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 and she went, she sent me back an email, in caps, ENOUGH! <laughs> so, we stopped. <laughs> when you joined Virago, it was an independent and was established at a very rich time for feminism. I know, and it's so different now. Here we are 40 years later and we're part of um, Little Brown, Little Brown part of Hachette. Um, but I feel very excited about Virago. I feel... It's been 
much cherished in this in this new life in this publishing house um, as an imprint rather than independent and I also feel th that there's been a, a, a new energy behind feminism and what I see now from younger women is courage conviction you know all the things that started Virago actually but also sort of not a feeling like they're going to be messed with you know I feel I feel younger women young women are braver now in a way that I think I look back and I think okay yeah we marched and we talked and we went all, all sorts of stuff but we were you were often feeling alone there were lots of women who didn't want to identify as feminists for example um, there were a lot of men who, who were really anti-feminist in the early days and I think that has shifted now. You know, it does feel to me that there's an acceptance that women should be equal. Of course we're not, but, you know, there's an idea that we should be. And I, so I feel very excited about the younger voices that are coming into, uh, into, into the fore in publishing. And then I feel very excited about people like you um, who are in publishing and, pub, you know, holding up the uh, banner of Virago. And I think you guys are going to be as bloody-minded as the earlier ones. Aha, uh -huh, fantastic. Thank you, Lenny, for joining us for this Virago podcast. Um, a Bite of the Apple is a hugely inspiring and delicious book. It shows just how much of our literature, our knowledge of women writers, and consequently our own voices and experiences have been drawn out and strengthened by Lenny and other members of the iconic and cherished imprint that is Virago Press. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Virago podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and also leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast. We'd also love you to be in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or our website, virago.co.uk. Tune in next month for another installment of Books, Feminism, and Conversation from Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women.